This is an ABC podcast. A few years ago, Justin Carter and his brother Chris hatched a plan for an outback adventure in the heat of the Australian summer. They decided to load up their motorbikes with tents and supplies and travel through the dust along the Streslecky track. The Stres is nearly 500 kilometres of rough dirt road. It links the towns of Inaminka and Lyndhurst in the South Australian outback. For the brothers, this journey wasn't only about having an adventure. They wanted to take their dad, Neville, back to his family's hometown of Loxton in country South Australia. Nev had always wanted to show his sons where their grandfather and great-grandfather had lived and worked. And he also wanted to search for a particularly precious fragment of the family's history. So that was the Carter family plan. But there was one slight hitch. Nev, who was in his late 60s, hadn't even been on a motorbike for 30 years. But nevertheless, in January 2018, the intrepid trio of Carters and their one-man support crew rode out of Lismore, bound for the desert. Their odyssey has been captured in a documentary called The Strays. Hi, Justin. Hi. When did you and, and your brother Chris start riding motorbikes? So Chris and I started when we were 80s, 80s children, so we started riding bikes, BMX bikes, and then transitioned to motorbikes as soon as we could, around oh, 13 to 15 years old. So, um, yeah, growing up in a country town and having access to all the sort of usual things kids are doing around that age, skateboarding and motorbiking and pushbiking was sort of what we would do to keep ourselves busy. Whereabouts did you grow up, Justin? So we grew up in um, northern New South Wales, mainly Coffs Harbour, and we had a bush block there, and we lived there for a while, and then we moved to Lismore for a period of time, and my parents went and into uh, university as mature-age students. And did you, you, you were learning dirt bike racing? Were you, were you racing bikes, or was it just something you did for fun? Uh, yeah, so both um, Chris and I started racing bikes as teenagers. I probably did a bit more of it than um, Chris, but from age about 15 onwards, I think at about... 14, I sold our family computer. and uh, <laughs> Did the family <laughs> know? My, uh, they found out afterwards. <laughs> and I brought myself a little Suzuki 80, and I think within about two months of owning that, I was out at the local track at Tucky Tucky in Lismore racing motocross, and I just fell in love with everything uh, mechanical and motorcycles. And you worked with bikes as well and selling bikes. Yeah, so um, that passion for bikes that Chris and I had just over time grew um, and we got the opportunity to get involved in a dealership and build up a dealership from very small single franchise into a multi-franchise dealership and bikes became a huge part of our lives. What about your dad Neville? What kind of bikes had he had experienced riding? Well he'll tell you he's pretty experienced but (laughs) (laughs) from my recollection uh, I can remember him riding his motorbike with Chris and I straddled on the front and the back as we were about six to ten years old, up and down the track at his property at Narna Glen. Maybe one or two rides here and there, but really it was pretty limited experience. And he built that house that you guys had there at Narna Glen? Yeah, so he's um, pretty resourceful and he started his working life as a roofer. And yeah, first the dream, I guess, in the late 60s, he purchased the property there and was going to build his own house and be self-sufficient, which was the dream back then. And um, so he spent yeah, most of our growing life, we were at Narna Glen with Neville hammering and sawing out the back, building the house that we were living in. So he is obviously an active bloke in his younger years. What kind of physical shape was he in by his late 60s? 
Uh, yeah, so he's let it go a fair bit, <laughs> but he definitely, when he was younger, he was um, extremely fit and he was a go out and do it, fix it himself type of person. And that didn't go away as he got older. He still liked to um, do everything himself. He's actually rebuilding there now at the moment. So he's active and physical, but, you know, he's in his late 60s and 70s. So, yeah. Is he a smoker, Justin? He's a heavy smoker. <laughs> he gets a lot of grief for that as well. <laughs> what did your dad say when you and your brother suggested that you make this ride across the Strez together? Well, he's been, he'd been at us for quite a while, and we originally were planning on going to somewhere like Europe and doing a tour around Europe on motorcycles. He had this thing in his mind, we're going to do the biggest bridges of Europe tour, and it was going to be very road-based. And Chris and I were okay with that, but we really wanted to do something a little more challenging, and he had the plan of taking us down to Loxton and he was adamant he needed to take us down there. And so we kind of said to him, well, let's just combine that and we'll go to Loxton if you come on this ride with us through the desert. And he was chomping at the bit as soon as we suggested it is. He was all over it. That's a great plan. When are we going? <laughs> well, you had to check that he could actually ride a motorbike first off. Where did you take him for a practice ride? Yeah, so we set him up and we took a bit of time to get the bikes ready and we were a little unsure about what size motorcycle we get him because we wanted to make sure that he had enough cc's to be able to travel the long straight distances that are out there but also we wanted to make sure that the bike was the right weight and he was going to be able to actually use it he was adamant he needed the same size bike as us so we thought well before we go anywhere we'll get him on one of these honda africa twins a thousand cc bikes and we'll just test out if he's okay with it and we took him for a short ride from lismore to byron bay and back how we soon found out, yeah, well, we soon found out that he might have needed a little bit more practice and he might have been overestimating his experience and his capability. So, um, <laughs> What happened? Well, he got to the headland up there at Byron Bay, had a small tip over. Chris and I started to think, uh-oh, what are we doing here? And we had to really reevaluate exactly how we were going to go about this journey through the desert. But no matter what we said to him, he was adamant he was doing it exactly the way we were doing it and he was going to be part of it and um, he wasn't going to ride a smaller bike. Uh, so he wasn't going to step back in any way, shape or form. So, yeah. I wonder if uh, having a little accident like that where he actually wasn't hurt could have been a good thing because I suppose being too confident on those kind of roads is, is a big danger. Absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the um, advantages of going first and having a little bit of a trial is to um, not only let us you know, have a better understanding of his skill level, but actually let him understand how heavy the bike is with all the gear on it and what it takes to actually hold one of those things up when they start to tip over on you. How fast did he go on the trip back to Lismore after that first little run in? Well, the trip back was pretty steady. He was uh, he was struggling to break 60 kilometres an hour and he had a line-up of traffic behind him. And He's we a man after my own heart. I respect <laughs> that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was out of it that he was doing fine and he said, I just want to take my time and look around. And we thought, okay. Yeah, I mean, how do you balance a big bike like that, Justin? How, how different is it from riding a smaller road bike? It's not necessarily harder. In a lot of ways, the bikes are very balanced. And if you can ride them, you understand the controls of them. They'll ride along the road, no problems. The real issue is when you get into a little bit of trouble or the bike goes sort of past that 45 degrees, you've got a 150-kilo motorcycle plus all your gear on it, so over 200 by the time you're all set up with panniers and equipment. And as soon as you get past about 45-degree angle, it takes a lot of strength to keep them off the ground. You decided to set off in the middle of summer, so not just the terrain to contend with, but the heat and all the risks that go along with that. Why did you want to make this trip in summer? Well, having a business and also um, we all had careers and we had limited time, so there was this small window of opportunity to do something. And 
we sort of looked at it and we went and thought about how it would be and whether we could make it and whether it was the right thing to do. And um, when we really weighed up what we were actually doing it for, we just came to the conclusion that we want some constraints. We want to put ourselves in a situation where, you know, we have to actually think about what we're doing and we wanted to make an adventure out of it. And it was the sense of adventure that was really driving the trip. So we knew it was going to be uncomfortable, but we just thought, you know, this is the one time we're going to get to do this with our dad and... Um, let's do it before we don't do it. I'm surprised you didn't decide to ride backwards or blindfolded or something like that. There are lots of constraints <laughs> if you're looking for constraints. <laughs> yeah. What, well, yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a design academic, so I'm always looking at affordances and constraints <laughs> and thinking about what things should we take to get away with this, but what can we, what can we also leave out? <laughs> what was your mum making about all of this as she realised that this was more than just sort of chat over a beer, but was actually a plan that was going was gonna to happen in in real life yeah at first she thought oh here we go here's another idea that's not going to happen and then once i think chris who's pretty organized he got involved and he started organizing um all the equipment and everything i think she thought okay this is getting serious and yeah she was a bit nervous and worried about it but i think she knew it was important for us to do it and we'd had um a couple of years of just everyone being really busy and not being able to catch up as much as we wanted and i think she just knew it was valuable for us to all do it and be together out there and, and have some time together how did you get the idea to make a film about the trip? Well, Chris and I are both academics working at universities and we work in screen media, games, film, animation. So that's kind of our daily working area. Um, we're always doing work on other people's films and on other people's games. And we were just like, how are we going to combine our two worlds of owning motorcycles and our passion for motorcycles and adventure and what we do in our other life? So a uh, film about what we're doing seemed like a great idea. But I think the really important thing was he also just wanted to document what was going on with our father at a time when he could still get around and be active and do what we're doing. So so what did that mean for you, deciding to record it as a film? What did that mean about what you had to bring with you? So as soon as we started, Chris and I started planning it out and we thought, this will be great, we'll use some GoPros and we'll attach them to the motorcycles and do the usual sports filming scenario. But it became really apparent that as soon as we wanted to get a little bit of drones, we wanted to do something a bit experimental, so we wanted to do some drone footage. And as soon as we realised we were going to use a drone as well and we needed to actually connect some of the links together, but we were also featuring in it, um, it became really obvious that we needed someone to help out. So we enlisted Joe Carter, who's a Carter as well, but no relation, <laughs> strangely enough, to come along, who's working with Chris at QT at the time, to come along help us fly the drone, document it. And also after Neville's experience at Byron Bay, we thought it wouldn't hurt to have a support vehicle just in case something happens out there and we need to put the bike on a trailer. So he came along in a, in a Land Cruiser as a support vehicle. And what about the bikes themselves? Like they're these big bikes, but did you need to do anything to them, make any adaptations for them to be ready for the kind of terrain you guys were going to be crossing? Yeah, so the, the Honda Africa Twins, amazing bike. It's kind of set up for it already, but their lineage, their history, if you like, is the Paris-Dakar overseas, which is a famous race. And so it's kind of, they're set up to go through desert terrain, but when they bring them over to Australia, they, they bring them out with road tyres on them, etc. So we had to do a couple of things. We put some off-road tyres on them. We raised the windscreens up with some windscreens that are slightly taller to keep the bugs out, out of your face and the wind noise down. We put some helmet communication on. Uh, and we made sure we got a model for Nev that had a semi-automatic gearbox as well to make his riding a little less complex. So um, so the bikes are really amazing, very small amount of changes. Even the panniers on them were um, factory panniers, so we just order them from the factory. And um, we basically purchased three swags, put them on the back, and 
the bikes were ready to go. <laughs> so on the day, the big day when you started in Lismore and, and headed out, I mean, that countryside around Lismore is so green and, and lush and mountainous. How quickly does it change as you head west? Yeah, oh, just that, even that first initial day of leaving was so amazing. And I mean, when we came back, we had a real appreciation for it. But yeah, it was so green and it was a beautiful time of year. And then that's when we started to notice there's no more gutters on the sides of the roads. It's starting to look really yellow and really brown. And there's a moment there where we just sort of went, OK, where this is not normal now. So we were out back. And how hot was it from from those early, the, the early days? In the months leading up, so preparing for the trip, it took a couple of months of preparation to get the bikes, get the equipment, to get all the planning organised. It was looking like it was going to be hot, but then not long before we left, we realised it was going to be an extreme temperature, the hottest times they'd had in 100 years. So on the day we left, it was around 35 degrees, and by the time we had transitioned the first two to three days, it had gone up 10 degrees, and we're in the mid-40s by the time we were around that sort of Yulo Thargaminda, just outside of in the outback Queensland area. So, and yeah, 45 by the time we were there. You, you're wearing motorcycle leather, so are you even hotter than that inside them? The um, gear that we wear... It's um, really protective, so it protects you from the sun and it's kind of lightweight considering what you could wear and it's really well ventilated, but there's just no stopping the heat when you stop still. So while you're travelling, you're getting quite a nice breeze through your gear, but as soon as you stop, the temperatures soar pretty quickly. So that made the filming really uh, interesting because we knew that we were going to have to, whatever shots we took or whatever scenery we were looking at, we'd have to jump off the bikes set up really quickly and then jump back on and get some wind through the, the gear. Otherwise, you could cook really quickly. <laughs> if you had a little bit of skin exposed anywhere, uh, you would fry up. So you couldn't take anything off and just risk it either. So you, know, you had to have the protective gear, not only so if you fell off the bike, but just from the sun even beating down on the back of your neck or anywhere else, it just, you would just burn very quickly. You drove past the odd waterhole even in that dry, dry country. What was the one at Yulo? like what did it look like how inviting was it <laughs> so if you look at it on the internet or something you might not look at it and think yes my my goal would be to jump into that water but after a couple of days of riding along at 45 degrees it was like an oasis <laughs> it was this um, dark green water full of weeds and mud and we couldn't wait to get in it <laughs> <laughs> you go past some iconic spots really on that route out to the stress lakey track where did you camp along cooper creek we went to the Digtree site. I think that was probably one most people would be familiar with. The Burke and Wills, obviously, uh, mission to get from Melbourne right up to the Gulf. Obviously, it was ill-fated, and they, they had uh, a spot there that we thought, you know, Neville had talked about it before, and we really wanted to take him there. So we stopped at the Burke and Wills Digtree, and, I mean, that time of year, unfortunately, the Cooper's Creek, we thought, was going to be full of water, so we'd have another swim, but it was pretty empty, and there were a lot of flies there, and it was very hot. But it was still a magical moment just to be there and to see that site we'd all heard about for so long. And did you camp out there at the dig tree? Yeah, so we rolled the swags out and slept in there for the night and um, you could look up at the stars and, and there's nothing like the stars when you're out there, out, out back in the desert at night. It's nothing like you'll see in the city. So once you go out to that sort of area, you really notice that in the middle of the night we'd zip the top of the swag open and um, you could just see the sky and it was just really amazing. I, I can't, it's very hard to explain, but the picture was just amazing. And unlike poor Birkin Mills, you had a trusty motorbike to get on the next day and, and keep heading keep heading west. You, the, you cross the yeah. Queensland-South Australia border and get to the town of 
in a minka, which I think is a population of about 44 people. What did the locals tell you there about the next part of your journey down the Strez? Well, the first response was, uh, what are you guys doing here? (laughs) (laughs) You're not supposed to be here this time of year. So they thought we were pretty crazy just even being out there. It was actually the hottest day in 100 years out there. It was 55 degrees. 55 Um, degrees. Yeah, 55 degrees on the day we arrived there. And I can still hear the door of the uh, of the Inaminka Trading Post opening, squeaking, and everyone looking at us like, uh, uh, "Guys, <laughs> are we having uh, so... a vision?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of trucks travel that every day in an air conditioned cab, but being three motorcyclists out there at that time of year in that temperature, you know, the first thing was, "Where's the ice? Where's the water?" <laughs> so, yeah. how was your dad coping with that heat? I I think. For his age and I think for his preparation, I think it was pretty amazing to see him actually keep up with this and to, you know, he did, we established earlier that he had the lack of experience in riding and just to see him adapt and to take it on and, you know, nothing I said to him would change his mind. I was, was, you know, do you want to stop here? No, no, let's go the way you'd want to go. And just seeing his tenacity with it was amazing, actually. So after the locals got over their shock at seeing you walk through the door of your motorcycles, what did they think about your plan to head down the Streslecki? Yeah, well, we'd been riding along for quite a while and we'd seen this sort of rain cloud off in the distance. We thought it looks like a storm, but we'd been chasing this thing for quite a while and there was never water on the road anywhere. And we asked one of the the truck drivers who just passed through and said, well, it's been closed for a few days. I've had a storm down there and uh, it's a bit of mud. And we thought, what are we going to do here? Oh, we'll go anyway. (laughs) Because what's the problem with there being being mud? What what does that mean for riding so out on those roads they get a lot of the 18 wheeler trucks and they get a lot of a lot of vehicles heavy vehicles go across this dirt road and it it is a pretty rough track it's not really a road so there's deep corrugations and what they call bull dust out there and the the bull dust is like it's almost like a talcum powder it's so fine type of dust and what it does is it rises and falls down and it looks like the road is even and so it covers deep potholes or or anything that might be hidden on the track and it looks like it's smooth road but when you go up to it it just gives way like a big puff of smoke will come out or dust will fly off the bikes and you'll hit some kind of sharp corrugation or dip in the road so you know we're really wary about how's the bulldust going to be because once that gets wet it turns into this sort of like toothpaste like mud that becomes really slick and difficult to actually navigate and to control your motorcycle on how do you adjust your, your riding when you come across conditions like that what can you do most of the time, like if you're an experienced rider, a lot of riders, will, you'll see the people standing up and they'll be standing up to go over the corrugations to give the bike a little extra suspension and to help balance on the foot pegs a little more. You have to be really gentle with your acceleration and braking, so you can't obviously hit the throttle hard. And, you know, when you're on a 1,000cc bike, they can really be sensitive to the throttle. And likewise, you've got to be really gentle with your brakes. So riding mud is really about keeping smooth control, staying focused and staying balanced. And that usually takes quite a lot of experience to do that. And I guess that's where we ran into a little bit of trouble. This track, the Streslecki, it's kind of got one of those mythic names, I think. It's got, it's, it's got a real, I don't know, there, there sort of feels mythos or, or energy around it. It's, it seems almost something out of, out of another world. What's the history of the track? Well, the history of the Stres is really interesting, actually. Um, it was really created by a cattle thief named Harry Redford in 1870, so just nine years after Burke and Wills had done the trip and actually had that ill-fated journey up there, 
a cattle uh, thief, a rustler, basically in 1870, moved about a 1,000 head of cattle south of Queensland down to Adelaide. So eventually he got convicted, but the... Well, he, he got found guilty, but the judge wouldn't convict him because he was so impressed that he was able to do it. So... <laughs> It sounds like a typical Australian story, but yeah, that's the end of it. <laughs> and it's called that because, of course, it's crossing through the Streslakey Desert. Yeah, so the Polish explorer, um, Sir Paul Edmund de Streslakey, he was the explorer, went back and he, he basically arrived in Australia in about 1839 and he did a geological survey across New South Wales and then published a book called The Physical Description of New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land and that's really where it came from. So it was named after Explorer. And you've been driving already for days through outback, through dry landscape. Does the desert itself look different once you're on the track? Can you can you click, okay, this is the this is the desert now? There it's absolutely nothing like it. I mean I'd been out west before in a car and not that far and I sort of hadn't really appreciated fully what it's like and I think motorcycles adds a new dimension to it and you know, the, the ability to actually take more in and just to actually feel the heat, feel the wind, it's just amazing. I mean, when you're first out in the desert, you look around and, and you really think, oh, there's nothing out here. And that's what you think straight away. But after you're there for a little while, you start to think, you start to really, I guess, take in and absorb all of the things that actually are there. And there's so much life out there and there's so much to see. What kind of life? What, what animals do you see? Oh, well, there's the bigger animals, the emus, the kangaroos, but there's also the flora as well. So some of the wildflowers and things that you see out there and just the, the little lizards and the little bits of movement. The whole desert's really alive. And I mean, never, I guess, just the vastness of looking at from all 360 direction, you'll see horizon, which is, you know, you've normally got to go out on a boat to get that kind of experience. So when you're out there, it's so, yeah, it's flat and you think there's nothing there, but Really, when you start to pay attention and you start to really be in the environment, and that's something that motorcycling is great for, you really start to appreciate, you know, the movement that's around you and the, the whole ecosystem that exists there and, and what that means with birds and lizards. What do those bigger animals like emus make of motorcycles riding past? Well, we had a few moments. Um, <laughs> so emus, strangely enough, like to run along beside your motorcycle and just test their pace against you. So I'm not sure if they <laughs> think you're... <laughs> yeah, so they, um, they'll run along beside you for a while and you'll, you'll think, OK, what are you up to? And then for no good reason at all, they'll dart straight out in front of you. So there was quite oh, a few wow. times there Chris would pull over and say, I'm just not riding with this guy. He can go away. <laughs> He's going to win. He's won this he's game of chicken. He's going to win because I can't predict when he's going to decide to, to shift left and cut across the road. So, uh, so despite the, the knowledge that this might be a particularly risky time to, to try to cross the stress and, and with the heat as it was and the risks of bulldust, you set out and, and you were a couple of hundred kilometres along when you saw something in your rear vision mirror. What happened, Justin? Yeah, so we had a helmet communication system set up and, I mean, we were trying to be as responsible as we could while still having an adventure. So I was riding ahead and just testing how muddy it was, um, having the most sort of riding experience. We thought that was the best. So I went a little bit ahead and I remember crossing a patch of, of mud that I thought was okay, but I still um, mentioned it in the headset to Neville, who was going along much slower behind. There was some mud ahead and just as I had finished telling him about it, I looked in my rear vision mirror and I could see his bike just swinging side to side and I thought, uh-oh, he's, uh, he's not keeping that one up. So, yeah, it was a quick turnaround and I got to um, the side of where he came down and 
Uh, there was parts of his bike and parts of his clothes and his sleeping attire all over the um, desert. And I had to sort of, yeah, really contemplate on whether we were doing the right thing at that point. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. What kind of state? Was he in physically? Uh, he was pretty busted up. Uh, yeah, he had a um, separated shoulder, we now know. At the time, we, I, get, I guess we were really concerned. So we took an EPIRB with us as well, and we were thinking, do we have to set this thing off? He was very winded. He had a separated shoulder and three fractured ribs. But, of course, when we asked him, he had nothing wrong with me and don't put my bike on the trailer and I'm fine, just give me a minute. But in reality, he was quite banged up. So what did you decide to do? So um, after some sort of contemplation and a discussion amongst us all he was really really concerned about ending the trip there he said i don't want it to end this way we thought right we'll put your bike on the trailer which was really only set up to carry some film gear so we put the motorbike on the trailer and um he jumped in with joe in the support vehicle which is i don't know which needed the support the vehicle or the bikes but (laughs) anyway and we thought we'll give it a day or two and the next stop was the uh, montecolino bore which is a bore in the middle of the desert yeah, we thought we'll give it some time. We'd planned a, a night camping out at the ball and we'll just see how he's travelling along. But the big stress was at that time, we looked up how um, close the next medical attention was and it was over 700 kilometres away. So it was really a moment of sort of high stress. So when you got to the bore and the chance to cool off a bit and, and have a conversation, what did you decide to do? So we had a swim with him and, and sort of he was playing brave dad and trying to prove to his boys that he was fine and he wasn't going to end the trip. So there's no way he was going to show us that he was actually injured. So Chris and I sort of jumped in. We had a swim and we encouraged him to jump in and have a swim with us and he started floating around. We thought, okay, he's not doing his usual playful self. <laughs> we think we might need to keep moving. So there was a moment there of what should we do? Is it, you know, we're so far away from any medical attention. It's 50 degrees. It's um, 700 k's before we can get him looked at properly. And um, what happens if in the middle of the night he suddenly has something go wrong with him and we don't know what to do? So, yeah, we decided at that point that we would jump back on the bikes and we would make our way into the twilight in the desert to try and get as close to medical attention as we could just in case something went wrong and we could get him there if we needed to. How do things change when you're riding at night? Well, first, this first start was it was just amazing riding straight into the sunset. I mean, it was difficult to see. There was dust there. We wanted to make up good time, so we were travelling pretty quickly along on this sort of corrugated road. And just to see the bright oranges and the reds at sunset was just amazing to be riding along because you typically wouldn't do that. But then as soon as the sun goes down, all of a sudden you can't see those corrugations. You can't see the bull dust. The ruts are terrible. And Chris and I were basically just struggling to keep the bikes straight and on the road. And so it became quite a challenge and really tested 
uh, the riding skill at that point. But yeah, we got a fair way along there and then decided, okay, maybe this is getting a little too dangerous and we had to pull over and basically camp on the side of the track. How did you sleep that night, Justin? Well, it was pretty windy, but in saying that, it was also amazing. So at first I had trouble sleeping with the um, just the being in awe of the actual outback and what the night sky was like and how silent and quiet it was. However, a couple of hours into the, you know, into the late into the morning, I woke up and looked up and there's Neville hunched over, really struggling to breathe and we had to have a quick round table and a discussion of what to do. So Chris and I decided the best bet was to get up early and get him to a place called Lindhurst, which is at the end of the Streslecky track, as quickly as possible. Were you feeling guilty at all as the as the sons who'd encouraged your dad to undertake this adventure? Absolutely terrible. <laughs> none of us none of us wanted to reveal to our mum what had happened. So <laughs> Chris and I were having many debates over who's gonna let her know. How's it Guilty gonna work? Guilty and afraid. Yeah, <laughs> whose idea was this? We should have been responsible. Why didn't we tell him no? And all those things go through your head and I think you really I mean Riding a motorcycle in the desert is a place where you can have real reflection anyway, so you really get a lot of time in your helmet to be thinking about where am I, what am I doing in life, how's this, what's going on here, and what are we doing, and what's this all about, and you have those moments anyway, but to then have that thrust into your head while you're out there as well, and to be thinking all about your decision making and what you're doing and why you're doing it, but you know, after after really pondering it for quite a while, Chris and I are both like, well... Look, this was really important to him. It's something he wanted to do, not just us. Um, if we'd done it without him, and I'm sure he would have been a lot more upset than if he'd been injured on the track. So I think we did the right thing in the end. But yeah, definitely moments of contemplation and concern and worry about our own decision making. And which which brother you or Chris drew the short straw to call your mum? Uh, well, what we actually did was a bit crafty. <laughs> we were we were updating the um, social media. Whenever Joe had some service, he put some stuff up. So there's one spot out there where you get service as a tower. And at the start of the trip, as we were leaving Northern Rivers, we had some really beautiful footage of nice green um, scenery and waterfalls. And we sent some to our mum and said, look, we're riding along. And she saw the three bikes. And then... Um, when we got to the sort of phone tower where you could upload a little bit more out in the middle of the desert, she suddenly realised there was two. So we didn't officially tell her or formally inform her, <laughs> but she figured it scare. out herself. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. boys. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris wouldn't do it. I wasn't doing it. So <laughs> it was one of the only times he's ever pulled your the big brother on me. <laughs> well, how was your dad's health the next morning? What kind of state was he in? Well, it's always hard to tell because he's hiding it so well, but he actually... In the next morning, he'd actually, for not sleeping half the night, he was actually a lot lot better than I thought he was going to be. And by the time we'd actually travelled to the end of the stress, his health had improved pretty significantly. And the main thing for us was his breathing. So you can have a, a fractured rib, but if the rib is penetrating anything that's going to prevent him from breathing well at his age, that's something we're really worried about. The shoulder we weren't too concerned about. So we're just keeping an eye on him. And, and by the time a couple of uh, night or two had gone by, he was really making a pretty good improvement so we decided to trek on and to see some more of the amazing outback. His goal, your dad's goal in all of this, was to get to the town of Loxton, which is where his family had come from. How big a passion is family history for your dad? We didn't really understand it, but he'd been on about his family history 
and absolutely obsessed with it for the last few years. And it sort of grew, grew over time. So we started mentioning a little bit about it, probably in his 40s. And then in his 50s, it became like something he talked about all the time. And then 60s, he started to really, really go on about it. And, and go on about it. it. So how were, you oh, and, it was, how were you and Chris feeling about this passion? Oh, it was almost unbearable. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we were just like, uh, can we stop with the family history now? We really didn't understand what it meant to him and why it was important. And I guess when you're in, you know, in your probably in your late 30s and early 40s, you start, you know, you've got other things going on. You're making your own family and you're building your own life and you're really not thinking about those sorts of things. But it was clear it was becoming more and more important to him and we really didn't have an understanding of just how much it really meant to him. And what had his family done in Loxton? What was their story? So um, his father had a bakery and his father before that had a bakery down that way and they'd had some trouble with their bakery and they ended up what they call rope in their bread, which is like, it's a sort of a disease in the yeast which makes the bread not really rise and set properly and creates some issues with it. So it's like a bacterial dis- yeah, gets, yeah. Into the, gets into the dough and you can't get rid of it. Can't get rid of it. Well, back then they couldn't. So, you know, the thing was back then was well, you had to burn down your bakery and, and that's it. It can't be a bakery anymore. And Actually see you later. burned um, the bakery. To the yeah, ground. Yeah, so they burnt it to the ground, apparently. That's that's what the historians tell us. So, <laughs> yeah, but I think what he did then was he planned on going and doing some work on the pipeline and then headed to Sydney. So he travelled through the desert. And so Neville's got lots of photos of his family surviving in that same desert that we were travelling through, living on canned fruit and flour, basically. And he just always talked about how tough it must have been. And he was trying to always relay to us that you don't understand what it would have been like to travel that desert with the whole family on board and trying to make your way through there. So yeah, so the trip really started to connect in that way as well. So it was Nev's dad who was still a little boy when this terrible thing happened with the family business and they had to burn down the bakery. But he grew up then, Nev's dad, and got married and I think had eight children that your dad is one of. Then what yeah. happened when when your dad, Neville, was just 15? What happened at home? Yeah, so there was, I think, six or seven of the children were travelled across the desert with him, and Neville was one of the ones who were the younger side of the family. So he was around 15, and he went to school one day, and um, he came home, and the ambulance was out the front, and his dad was on a stretcher, and he says to us all he can remember is seeing his arm hang off the stretcher, and then um, he never saw his dad again. So he yeah, never he had a chance to, to say goodbye and, and had no, no sense that, that his dad was about to pass away. It must have been a terrible shock. Yeah, I think at, at 15 it was a pretty traumatic experience for him to, to have it in that way. And I think um, for me one of the things he actually said along the trip to us that really resonated with me was that just it made me see him as a 15-year-old boy again. And like when your 68, 70-year-old father is telling you that, you know, he's upset with himself because he didn't allow his dad to come and watch him play football. He played football for Manly Reserves when he was younger. and He said he wouldn't let his dad go and watch him play football because he was scared the other kids would swear while his dad was there. And he said, "What a stu- you know, what a stupid thing to have done. And I thought to myself at that point, having sons of my own, I just thought, what silly things we do when we're young, we're embarrassed of our parents. And he really is living in that moment of, you know, not getting to say goodbye, not getting to show his dad that he succeeded and that he's had a good life and not getting um, to have an adult relationship with his dad the way um, he has with with you and chris absolutely and that's when i think chris and i really started to understand okay so this is this is what this trip's about for him really is making sure that he gets to be in our lives and that we actually have some connection as adults together and that he can right some wrongs in that history in some way what 
kind of relationship do you have with your dad, Justin? Well, from the outside, <laughs> it probably doesn't look great. We argue a lot. We, um, what do you argue about? <laughs> oh, normal everything. He's always, he always knows the best way to do everything, like a dad does. And of course, I we think must I be related, Justin. Yeah. I think I think yeah. I've got the same one. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone has the same one, including my kids. Don't worry. <laughs> but um, he knows the best way to do everything. Everything, everything. Um, and of course, I'm the same. And so. We have a pretty, uh, there's a bit of friction there all the time. and But, you know, he's just, uh, and, and my mum as well, they're just, as parents, they've just been so supportive. And anything that Chris and I, crazy ideas we've had, everything from, you know, businesses to making games and films and to anything we want to do, they've always been there for us and they've always put us first. So just to see and be able to have that time with him and actually build on that relationship. And, you know, I think I think when you're an adult and you're, and you're with your parents and maybe they annoy you a little bit and you get in an argument, it's easy just to just to go home and to or to leave the situation rather than to have the discussion and go through it together. But when we went out there in the desert and we were out on those bikes together and we were stuck with each other. There was no okay, you know, I'm right, you're right, see you later. It was let's work through it. And so really I think that was just the amazing part about it was that we didn't have that ability to just be dismissive or we had to listen and we had to be there together and I think that really in terms of giving some meaning to our bond as, as a family and I think that was really important to just do that. Well the three of you managed to arrive safely at this this town of Loxton where your dad's dad was from. Could you find the spot where the the family bakery had once stood? Uh, yeah we <laughs> we spent the first couple of days, and Neville's still pretty banged up, and he's a little bit dehydrated, and he's, you know, got one arm hitched up, and he's sort of walking around, and he's desperately trying to show us his family history, and Chris and I were just, you know, quite frankly, over it. <laughs> we haven't, and we were walking around, and he's just showing us old black and white photos, and he's pointing at a service station, and he's telling us, you know, this is where it was, and this is my dad walked this street, and he would have done this, and this, and... Um, so we, we kind of, we were hunting around Loxton, which is a, you know, an area that we're not familiar with, but he's familiar with because he's done all this research on it, looking for any sort of evidence of his father's existence and the stories his father had had and any sort of maybe landmark or anything he'd left in the world, I guess. It's easy to see that's what he's looking for. What object did your dad have in mind, almost as a kind of a holy grail that he was, yeah. was hoping to find some trace of in Loxton? Well, for the last decade, we've heard about how his dad's bakery was a major part of the local community, and what they used to do every Christmas was give out a um, a pie in a plate, and on the plate it would it said Carter and Co Bakeries. So, I guess he had heard about them and seen them before at some point, but he couldn't ever get his hands on one, and so he knew there was that his dad had been putting these out every year at Christmas, and he knew they were around, and so he really wanted to find this evidence of this plate that was Carter and Co Bakery on it. How on earth do you go looking for a plate? I mean, where did you start? Well, <laughs> I think we started at, at every at the, the furthest corner and we've wound up at the closest corner. We <laughs> went everywhere. Your, we and went your dad in. just asking people, have you got oh, a plate with Carter and Co written on it? Absolutely no shame in asking <laughs> everyone and anyone. So he had us in all the little, anyone who looked like they'd been in Loxton for a while. <laughs> 
um, we walked in, knocked on their door, and he said, "Have you seen this plate? Have you <laughs> have you heard about the bakery that was here once?" And there's a few confused looks, and you know, we went to um, the heritage place in town, and they'd said, "Well, have you tried the historic village?" And sort of, yeah, I went there a few years ago. There was nothing there, and you know, we said, "Well, maybe we should go there as well." But there was a lot of before we went there, there was a lot of people asking us, <laughs> looking at us very confused about why three people in motorbike uh, gear would be walking around, uh, looking like we did after crossing the desert, searching for a plate. <laughs> so you didn't have any luck finding a plate in the, the streets of Loxton, despite your dad asking everyone he could find. You ended up somewhere called the Loxton Historical Village. What did your brother Chris spot? So we're in the we're in the foyer of the um, historical village, and Chris was talking to the lovely lady there about what we we're on this journey for and what was going on. And Neville was asking, "Had she seen a plate?" and and they were discussing what type of plate it might be. And then Chris turns to Neville and says, "Have you um have you checked this one here?" And he goes, "Does it say Carter and Co on it?" And then Neville's laughing as if as if Christopher is just pulling his leg. And um, he reached down, picked it up, and it was the exact plate with his dad's name on it. <laughs> How did he react? Oh, he was amazed. He um, he just, you know, his legs gave way, basically, and he almost dropped it. <laughs> so Chris had to save it. <laughs> but um, he was just uh, blown away, and you could literally see that he'd got, for him, it was just completely overwhelming. He knew how silly it was. Um, that he was upset over a plate, but uh, he really was blown away with it. And um, really, for him, it was just the moment of actually putting his hands on something that his dad there, and it was proof his dad had left a mark somewhere in this in this world, you know. He'd always tried to reiterate to us that his dad had done something and that he was really proud of his dad, but he never got to tell his dad. And I think it was really important, not just for him to, to show us a plate or to show... That really isn't what mattered. I think it was more important that he actually got the opportunity to share with Chris and I his story and just to prove it was real and to, to give us that connection as well. It really showed why it mattered so much to him. And all those years of us being pretty dismissive and going, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, really it all it all comes out. I mean, he, um, he really started to relate to us what it meant for his dad to have passed when he was younger and not getting the time that he missed with his dad. And um, we started actually hearing for the first time in, you know, I was 45 at the time, I'd started hearing a little bit about their relationship and um, I hadn't heard up I'd heard about his father and my grandfather, but I never really understood his relationship with his father. And so for the first time to really just hear that and just to know that he had a really strong connection and he really missed him and he missed a lot of the time, that was really important. And I think it was so easy for us not to understand that when he was just telling us out of context. But once we'd been through that journey together and we were standing there and we could actually see what was going on and how it affected him, I think it was much easier to connect together and see what his father meant to him at that point in his life. Did he get to keep the plate? No. He, um, he, I mean, he could probably have taken it Claimed if he wanted. It. If he, yeah. <laughs> but um, we decided it was best just to, to take away the memory of, of the plate because it wasn't really... Uh, the, the plate wasn't really the thing. It was really, you know, the memory of and the experience that we were doing together. I think that was the real value in, in the trip. So you'd found, he'd found this holy grail, even if he did have to leave it in the Loxton Historical Village. Your quest was complete. All you had to do now, you three adventurers, was return home. How did your dad decide to journey back? Well, at first he sort of, he didn't think he was going to be able to ride, but he was really adamant that he wanted to do it. And Chris and I were 
look, we've you've done enough. You've proved your point. You know, you've had a go. That's good enough. And he was, he was. I want to finish this properly. I don't, you know. And so <laughs> we thought, all right. We spent a couple of hours bolting some things on, and we got some uh, some gaffer tape and some screws and some wire, and we patched the bike up. And, uh, <laughs> we got him going again, and it was very brave of him. He jumped on the bike, and uh, he completed the journey home, riding back into home. And I think for him, that was an amazing accomplishment. Your dad faced a, a real tragedy about a year after you came back from your Outback adventure. What happened on the first anniversary of that drive? Yeah, so not long after, um, yeah, just on the 12 months of coming back, we were still on a bit of a high talking about the trip and how amazing it was and his memories. And, of course, the trip stimulated him to go and get any items he had of his father's and any of his childhood memories and make sure he had those possessions, those material things. And unfortunately, in 2019, Nana Glen, where his house is, was ravaged with some bushfires, and they lost their home and all their valuables. So everything was gone. Was he there, Justin, when the fire front came through? Yeah, so we were all based in Brisbane, and um, Neville was down there by himself, and my mum was up in Brisbane with us. And we jumped online, and sort of the fire came so quickly, we... We had to call him and none of us could get to him, so it was kind of very stressful. I was there by himself. He was sort of, the place had been through a few fires before, so he was sort of reluctant to leave and he was saying, it'll be okay and everything will be fine. I've got enough break around the house. And but this fire was like no other fire that's ever been through there. And, and thankfully, he had enough time to put the poodles in the car, put my mum's dogs in the car and take off to their uh, the home at Emerald Beach. And um, yeah, unfortunately, all those sort of material possessions he had, those mementos of his family life with us and also, you know, his photos and anything he had of his father actually was completely destroyed, including the house he'd built there over the last you know, 40 years. So um, very traumatic experience for him. And I think that brought so much more value to the actual trip that we did together because it actually meant that he had that memory, his current memories, and we're making new memories rather than relying on those sort of material possessions. And I think it's lucky we didn't bring the plate back because it would have gone in that fire as well. You're right. What was it like for you, Justin, going back to the place you'd grown up and first ridden motorbikes? What did it look like when, when you went back? Oh, it was just devastating. You know, so we, we grew up playing in the bush around there and literally throwing rocks at each other as kids do and you know it's just so much wildlife and they they really value the environment there they have been really careful about not leaving a footprint there as much as possible so their property there is um you know, it's just everything from the the black cockatoos to the kangaroos that live there that we're so used to seeing when we drive into their track and you know up the very track that he used to ride us to school on on his motorbike driving up there and just seeing it just all black and no, nothing green, everything just totally obliterated, nothing but some corrugated iron left of the house he'd built. It, it was a complete shock because for us that's our family home. That's what's been in our lives our whole time and that's what we, we believe will be in our lives forever. So to just see all of the trees black, no green grass, no animals, it was just an absolute shock. Does he want to, want to rebuild there? Do he and your mum plan to stay in Nana Glen? He's not leaving. That's his home, so... Uh, straight away, even at his age, he started now and he's, he's rebuilding. Himself, physically? His, yeah, himself. <laughs> he won't get anyone in, so he's, he's trying to um, rebuild himself. And, yeah, I mean, Chris and I will do our best and our sisters as well will definitely do our best to help support them as they rebuild at Nana Glen. And, you know, that's their 
spiritual home. That's where they want to be. So we just have to go through that process again and hope we stick it out and no more fires come along. It's such a poignant loss to lose all of those mementos and that the trace of your family photos and trinkets. I guess, though, it underlines that what matters is the relationship, is the the human connection, which is what you three really established so strongly on that trip. And I suppose on the film, you've, you've got a record of some of those photographs of some of that historical memory. You've only had a few showings of the documentary so far. How have people reacted to the film, and I guess especially to your dad, to Neville? Yeah, well, he's famous now, if you ask him. (laughs) (laughs) So he thinks he's pretty special. And, um, yeah, I I was completely shocked, actually, that how it's come out and and the reception it's been getting is amazing. People are really identifying with that that concept of family and what that means and and um, so far the feedback has been incredible it's been winning some international awards so we're really happy with it and um, Neville is uh, unfortunately COVID he didn't actually get to see the first screening so yeah he had to sort of hear about it and he'd never seen it so last week we actually um, had another screening especially for Neville and his close family to come in together and to watch it and um, thankfully he was amazed he loves it and yeah I think he comes off really well I've received so many emails and calls about how great my dad is I have to start calming them down a little bit I think (laughs) that must rankle a little bit sometimes if only you knew the whole story of I'm gonna have to start telling them real (laughs) stories you'll have to show the off cuts yeah the director's cut (laughs) Justin it's it's really great to speak with you and give my best to Neville and thank you so much for telling you your family story on conversations yeah thanks for having me Justin Carter and the documentary telling the story of that grand family adventure is called The Strays. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.